This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Drug discovery and development is a slow and costly process, but the Regeneron Genetics Center represents a drugmaker's bet that harnessing large amounts of genetic data can point the way to better targets, greater success rates, and ultimately better drugs. We spoke to Aris Barris, Vice President and Head of the Regeneron Genetics Center, ahead of the Precision Medicine World Conference 2017 in Silicon Valley, about how large-scale genetic studies are bringing fundamental change to the drug development process, the approach Regeneron is taking, and why it's becoming a necessary element of drug development today. Aris, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you as well. We're going to talk about the Regeneron Genetic Center, the, the role of genetics in drug development today, and the upcoming Precision Medicine World Conference 2017 in Silicon Valley that kicks off January 23rd. Perhaps you can begin with Regeneron Genetics Center. For listeners who may not be familiar with it, can can you explain what it is, what it does? Absolutely. So our genetics program, uh, we've got a group here that we call the Regeneron Genetics Center, or RGC for short. And a couple of things I describe about it. Uh, One, it's a wholly integrated genetic center. And what I mean by that is that We have a very large sequencing program and data analysis effort, and that's really fully integrated here at Regeneron. We do sequencing in-house. We don't collaborate on that aspect of it, Um, and we are doing all the primary analysis um, and association discovery within our group as well, collaborating with outside groups. The other part of the integration is that we're fully integrated within the Regeneron R&D engine, and that's a really valuable thing as you think about translating genetic discoveries into actionable opportunities for new targets or to advance some of our existing therapeutics. And we've got the unique opportunity here with hundreds and thousands of really top-notch scientists and clinicians to be constantly linking up the genetic findings we have with people right down the hall who are deep experts in biology in many different fields and people who are deep clinical experts in various areas of medicine. So they can help us quickly um, and rapidly interpret these findings and put them in the right uh, clinical and therapeutic context. And they can also help us on the front end of the whole process. We want to have great questions to ask of the data and attack the data. They can really help us formulate great questions and those that are really relevant um, therapeutic opportunities. Another way I, I would describe the genetic center is the scale of it. And so we're certainly a large-scale genomics program. And we're one that has sequenced about 150,000 uh, people to date across our various collaborations, um, and one in which we're looking um, at sequencing, you know, 150,000 to 200,000 people a year or so moving forward. Um, so that's another um, big point of what we're doing. We're really going big. We're looking for those really actionable 
the large effect mutations um, on diseases of interest in the pork sports. Well, what's the history of the center here? How did it come about, and what was the the driving idea behind it? Well, as you know, one of the the biggest bottlenecks, I mean, what we do is is really hard um, as an industry in terms of um, thinking about uh, understanding disease at a molecular level, identifying drug targets, and then making medicines that can effectively drug those targets and be efficacious and safe. It's really one of the hardest things uh, that we can do. and the industry has done a phenomenal job um, over a long time in terms of innovating around bottlenecks. And one of the key bottlenecks that we have today, uh, despite all of these great technologies, is well-validated drug targets. So it's been well-documented, you know, the, the failure rate in drug development and how much money it can actually cost when you aggregate all those failures for every one success. I mean, it's billions of dollars to get one drug across the finish line. Uh, one stat that we like to look at and it's really mind-boggling, is there are about 20,000 genes, let's call it, um, in your genome. And those, you know, largely represent, you know, opportunities for drug targets. Each, you know, gene encodes a protein or a couple, you know, proteins. And those are things that we can go after and drug. When we look at our databases and databases available to the field in terms of the entire industry, how many drugs are we developing, how many targets are we attacking, it's about 500 to 1,000 of those 20,000. We're all going after the same targets and a very small number of them. So that means that we don't know what most of these 20,000 genes are doing. We don't know how they're connected to diseases, how they may be involved in causing disease, and how we could intervene and improve uh, certain diseases. So that's where genetics really comes in. It's not everything, but it's one of the big things that we can use to help systematically understand what all these genes are doing or to look at various diseases understand what genes may be major drivers and points where we can intervene. So that, that was the real, you know, motivation um, behind wanting to have a big genetics program here. We at Regeneron have success in terms of drug development programs over the last couple of decades that have followed human genetic stories uh, from the field. We've also had a lot of success in being um, mass genetics leaders in the field. But as you know, this field has rapidly evolved and the technology revolutions and sequencing and the genetic discoveries going on around us, there was really a tipping point around five years ago or so with next-gen sequencing coming on board at scale and, and cost-effective scale, where we decided we wanted to jump in in a big way. And we explored multiple options, collaborating with outside groups, um, leveraging publicly available data, uh, but we ultimately decided that we were gonna build something internally and collaborate with a lot of other folks outside. But we needed to do something at the scale we're talking about. We wanted to do something like sequence 100,000 people at Geisinger. And people weren't doing that at the time. And, and frankly, they're still not doing that. Um, there are initiatives that are getting there. And so that was really the motivation as well as the context of, of what was going on at that time and now um, that really drove us to build a large-scale genetics program here. Well, you've seen the introduction of, of a number of technologies that were expected to accelerate drug development, make it more efficient uh, over the years, um, although I'd say there, there's been little movement in the needle in that regard. How, how do you see the introduction of large-scale genetic studies changing drug development? We think it's going to have a big impact. Again, com- coming back to what we said, drug development is very hard. Um, and so it's always perhaps uh, for some of the hardest challenges going to take a little while to figure these things out and then be successful in intervening. Uh, but to the, to the industry's credit, there has been tremendous uh, innovation along the way. Um, 
going from the more traditional approaches of small molecule drug development, the whole biotechnology revolution was phenomenal. And just think about the types of tools we have available today with antibodies and proteins and biologics-based therapeutics. I mean, clearly that made a huge, huge impact on our industry and our ability to do drug development. Um, there's also, you know, the reality of some of the, you know, lower hanging fruit was tackled earlier on uh, in the industry's um, uh, history, and now we're faced perhaps with some of the more challenging, um, you know, unsolved diseases, if you will. Um, so that might explain, you know, your your point about, you know, these there are still delays in terms of making major advances in in uh, field. But we are very excited that maybe human genetics is going to be another big innovation, uh, an opportunity to accelerate those timelines. Uh, the way we see it really impacting is what I alluded to beforehand, in that we're going to start to get a much better map in terms of connecting genes to diseases, understanding where we can, where we have big genetic levers that we can pull, and where we can develop therapeutics that mimic those and have a big effect on disease. We're also really excited by the opportunity to better characterize and understand diseases at a molecular level. And so that's been talked about a lot, and it's this idea of precision medicine or you know, personalized medicine, which is not a new one. We want to get the right therapies to the right people where they'll be most effective. Uh, and I think genetics and genomics has a big promise there. Uh, we've already seen, uh, and there are, there are many documented examples, uh, but for instance, in a disease like inflammatory bowel disease, um, which can be, you know, quite heterogeneous. You know, others have reported and we're kind of in the midst of studies now as well, and have known mutations there um, actually explain uh, Pretty substantial fraction of that disease. So, you know, there's a particular you know, mutation in you know, the NOD2 gene um, where we see something like 8 to 10 percent of IBD cases um, have mutations in that gene. And so that's a really meaningful point in terms of precision medicine where a large fraction of people with IBD seem to have a common um, genetic etiology. And you can imagine how impactful that could be in terms of thinking about you know, drug development in IBD um, and in subsets of people who have those types of mutations. You've been involved in a, a number of collaborations to do large-scale sequencing of patients. How have these worked, and, and what are the goals? And are, are you sharing this data with others? Or are you taking any outside data and, and aggregating it, or is this exclusively Regeneron's data that you're working with? So this field has been amazing. Uh, it's really been tremendous to work uh, with the genetics community, one that has been very welcoming. Um, we've had so much help and so many people we can point to that helped us come into this field. As I mentioned, we've been in drug development, we've been in mouse genetics, but we hadn't been doing a lot of <clears throat> human genetics on our own. And we really got uh, big assists all over the place to help us get into this field and be big contributors. Um, so it's a special field in that regard. Um, and true to that, we've had a lot of success uh, in the collaborations you asked about. So we have about 35 collaborators around the world that we're working with in these sequencing and genetics projects. And we continue to add. Um, we probably add 12 or more of these types of collaborations a year. And I will say they've all been very successful. And really the model um, of, of this approach, this collaborative approach, is that we engage in these um, efforts. You know, we have a tremendous sequencing capacity, uh, a tremendous scientific capacity here. Uh, can be great scientific colleagues and collaborators. And the groups that we work with around the world uh, similarly, are great investigators, scientists, clinicians, and they've built these very valuable and unique cohorts, um, you know, DNA sample sets integrated with and associated with great clinical data. 
And so the joint efforts and goals are to really create large-scale genetic data, combine those. There's full and equal data sharing, uh, to your question, between the collaborations. There's lots of publications, um, as we can point to, uh, and that's encouraged. Uh, and they've really been um, highly successful. Uh, the main goals are looking at advancing just you know, genomic science and, and discovery science. And there's also you know, the more applied aspects of them. Obviously, here we've got a number of questions and interests help fuel drug discovery and targets in our existing programs. And many groups, uh, if we start to talk about places like Geisinger Health System and others, um, are doing great work in terms of genomic medicine, so actual implementation of using genomics in clinical practice. And so groups like that are using a lot of this data. You know, they are clear validating it. They are going through uh, the appropriate channels and interacting with patients um, through appropriate providers. But they're returning this data back, the actual findings, and then um, working with these patients um, in their downstream care after that. So, you know, there's really multiple goals and multiple ways that, you know, everyone benefits from this, from the industry, from science, the patients. Uh, you know, this, this collaborative approach and model of this community and in genomics um, is really a phenomenal thing. And what's, what's the approach are you gathering genomes of specific populations of specific disease populations of is it is it just a matter that as many of these genomes as you can gather is is valuable how do you go about deciding what to look for that's a great great question so obviously the scientific approach behind all of this is hugely important and you know all of the above that you mentioned have been successful you know while you're asking about those so one thing that we've chosen to do as a scientific strategy is actually to leverage all of these approaches. So each one of these has been wildly successful. There have been, you know, big efforts in founder populations, or as you mentioned, you know, share genetics. Uh, we could point to really pioneers in this field, you know, deco genetics, where we look at, you know, the Amish um, and what has been done there in terms of genetics. Um, large numbers has always been a big part of genetic discovery. Or groups that have looked at specific diseases. Um, and have large numbers there, or they have deep uh, phenotyping that really, you know, make the discoveries pop. You know, Dallas Heart Study, for instance, is a big example in the work they did with PCSK9. So again, what we've decided to do is that um, deliberately we have decided to work in each of these areas, and we found that to be um, really productive in terms of having multiple shots on goal, but also we can leverage uh, each one of these off of each other. So the approach around studying families and, you know, very highly penetrant genetics um, is a high-yield approach. Uh, we have a big uh, genomics effort there. Um, looking at large populations, the advantages there, you know, for instance, looking at our collaboration with Geisinger Health System, we can look at hundreds and thousands of phenotypes that wouldn't be available in other types of cohorts of genetics approaches. We can also get really large numbers. So with Geisinger, we're approaching, um, you know, getting to 100,000 people who've been sequenced. And obviously, the collaboration has, you know, large aspirations to sequence as many people as we can. You know, maybe the next, um, you know, milestone we've talked about might be a quarter of a million or so. And you can imagine at that scale, you've got not only, you know, all those great phenotypes and the breadth of the data from the electronic health records, but you'll have hundreds and thousands of people at that scale that have these rare and really interesting and valuable mutations like loss of function mutations. And we can really start to have power to make connections with phenotypes um, and associations with disease. Um, similar concept around these disease-specific cohorts, 
you know, when you look at a couple hundred thousand people, when there are less prevalent diseases, like some of the autoimmune diseases, you're still going to be dramatically underpowered. So there's huge value in the types of efforts uh, around multiple sclerosis and IBD, where they've accumulated tens of thousands of samples. And we're excited to be part of those types of efforts to now sequence those types of samples that consumer discoveries can be made there. And so, you know, what we've also are finding is that not only do each one of those approaches, um, are they extremely valid and unique in their own right, but you can start to combine them. So what we might find from a couple, you know, very unique families in terms of a really novel gene involved in early onset obesity or going through a bowel disease or whatever it may be, we can then also look at the large, you know, population and see if you know, those genetics can be generalized to a broader population or if we can, you know, extend those findings with additional phenotypes. You know, similar to a you know, work that we do in founder populations, we might find really interesting associations and discoveries from our large sample sets. And then here you might be extremely lucky to be working with one genetic isolate where they're dramatically enriched for these types of mutations. They may have, you know, 100 people who have a knockout for a certain gene, and we may have only had you know, 50 people in a data set of 100,000 um, from a general you know, population that, that wasn't kind of an isolate or enriched for that. Um, so we're having a lot of success leveraging these different approaches off of each other and letting them extend and strengthen the discovery. Obviously, in, in the rare disease arena, in, in several types of cancer, uh, a genetics approach has been very valuable in identifying a target to go after in, in developing a therapy. I'm wondering how broadly therapeutic you think a genetics-driven approach may be beyond monogenic diseases. Do, do you see the potential for what you're doing to improve therapies where multiple genes may be at play? Yeah, we, we think that it's really um, can be applied quite broadly. So you make a great point, um, and I think a lot of the field is thinking this way, in that there are opportunities in rare disease genetics where the monogenics exist, as you said, and perhaps those are more tractable, more immediately um, actionable. We just need to go back and correct that genetic lesion, lesion or figure out a therapeutic strategy to intervene in, in that patient population. Uh, but there are going to be a lot of instances, and maybe not every time, but a lot of instances where that insight can be generalized um, to more common and complex disease. So let me give you just a few examples. You know, one that uh, we in, in the field knows very well, you think about something like familial hypercholesterolemia. And that's actually where the initial discoveries came for things like PCSK9. It was another FH gene. And so you could imagine, and those therapeutics have been targeted to that initial kind of rare disease population. But what was also discovered later, um, and I mentioned the work in the Dallas Heart Study by Helen Hobbs and Jonathan Cohen, they had the insight to look at a few genes of interest to them and to look at the extremes of lipids in that population. Uh, and they made a really exciting discovery in that loss of function mutations in that gene had the exact opposite effect. And they dramatically uh, reduced um, cholesterol levels and protected people from disease. So what was and is a rare disease opportunity is also something that's applicable to tens of millions of people. You can target uh, this gene or its gene product as a drug target, and you can lower cholesterol and you can have um, a protective effect on atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in many, many people who don't have uh, that rare disease. Um, there are other opportunities that are less far along. Um, I always love to point to this example. Um, there's a really striking genetics example 
um, a disease called congenital insensitivity pain. And so these individuals have a mutation in a channel um, that makes them insensitive to pain. And so there are kind of textbook pictures of what we call the human pincushion um, that really don't feel pain. And they present with things like fractures or painless childbirth. It's extremely rare, uh, but you can you can see how the industry, it's a really tough channel to drug, but the industry has looked at that to see if, could we mimic that effect and have applicability to, you know, all sorts of different type of pain. Um, so that type of example um, exists. And I guess one other thing I'd say is, one thing we like to do is look for protective associations um, with genes. And so if we find, you know, loss of function mutation in a gene, and it's protective in asthma and COPD, for instance, or it's, you know, another one is protective in NASH and, and chronic uh, liver disease. Even if it's only, you know, 100 people or 500 people in our data set that's driving that association, you know, there's a lot of reason to think that, well, you know, those people are just like everyone else in terms of um, them being susceptible to the risk factors for those diseases. And, you know, these genetics seem to protect them from that. So, um, it's a good hypothesis to think that, you know, gosh, if we could develop a drug strategy where we could, you know, knock out um, or antagonize that target, maybe it will have broad applicability in terms of uh, protecting people or improving them um, from all sorts of, you know, uh, different ideologies that, that drive uh, that particular disease. So we're wildly enthusiastic about how broadly we can apply genetics, not just in the rare disease space, um, but across, frankly, almost every disease and condition we're, we're looking at studying. Drug development has long been thought of a, a pursuit that takes place in a, a wet lab, but the type of work you're doing is very much about large-scale data analytics. How does this change the type of talent you need, and, and does it force any kind of rethinking by drug companies of the skills they need to do drug discovery today? Yeah, it's a big point. Um, it's a hot field. Um, it is a big change, as you discussed. And so, you know, folks are needed who have a um, different set of skills. Um, this is a, a young and exploding field in terms of genomics and data sciences. And a lot of the standards and a lot of the skill sets are still being developed. And, you know, the appropriate training and experience exists in few places or you know, uh, leaders in the field have had only a very short time of that uh, experience and training in many cases. So, you know, at the end of the day, what we really need is people who have very strong quantitative and computational backgrounds, people who are very strong in informatics. But I will say one thing we believe uh, a lot in here is that it can't be those skill sets in isolation. You know, they, they really also need to be grounded in, you know, biology and medicine. Uh, so they need to be able to straddle the two. Um, and at a minimum, need to be able to kind of converse and communicate and collaborate with the folks who are more traditional, you know, biologists, chemists, and those who are clinicians um, doing drug development. Uh, so that's been where we focus. And we've really tried to make sure that the folks, you know, have diverse backgrounds and skill sets that I've described, or that we really set up the organization here uh, and the collaboration across our organization so that the right pairs of people come together, people who are very quantitative with people with biological backgrounds or people with clinical uh, backgrounds and responsibilities to really help translate and hand off um, a lot of these discoveries and make sure that they, they really move forward in terms of new targets, new therapeutic opportunities. How does the center integrate with the company's drug discovery and development divisions? Do you, 
you see its role as being supportive or is it more of a leadership function of making discovery that it brings to the other side? A little bit of both. And, you know, we, we greatly, um, you know, relish that opportunity uh, to provide, you know, support to every target and every program we can here. We're really excited about that. Um, and we also have a big responsibility here to be leaders in terms of identifying new discoveries and new opportunities where we can push into the Regeneron pipeline as pre-targets and targets uh, to move forward. So I think we talked a little bit already about, you know, how we really integrate. Um, and again, in summary, you know, that's a big point to us. So we do have this genetic center here, um, but it really only works because we're highly integrated with the folks doing the preclinical research, with the folks doing um, clinical development. And it's really that collaboration and how seamless and how fast it is and everyone, you know, pulling in the same direction that it really works and it really works so well. Well, to what extent has it started to reshape the Regeneron pipeline, the work you're doing? Yeah, it's had a big, big effect. And as I mentioned, we've always been genetically inclined, if you will. We've always prioritized opportunities that had strong genetics evidence. We always um, took the approach of, you know, mouse genetics and our velocity and technology that, that was developed here and has been, you know, now uh, used for decades. And so what really this has done is kind of put rocket fuel on the ability to incorporate genetics into every target of every program, wherever possible. And that really is, is our mandate now. Um, so we have, you know, some uh, prime examples of where that's worked really well. Uh, we can point to things that, you know, we've talked about um, and presented uh, publicly before, things like our findings with the ANGPTL3 and ANGPTL4 programs. Uh, we have a late-stage drug development program in ANGPTL3, and there was some really nice uh, collaborative work here at Regeneron done to be able to show um, that there are loss of function mutations in that gene that dramatically protects from heart disease. Um, on the other end, um, we've got you know, really exciting new discoveries in important diseases. So you know, new targets that we can now pursue um, in liver disease, in other cardiometabolic diseases, uh, in depression and psychiatric diseases, we're all, really all over the place. Um, and it's been dozens of these types of discoveries, new discoveries here, that we've been able to advance uh, into the Regeneron pipeline for you know, deeper biology and to be worked up as pre-targets and targets. Um, so it really has, um, you know, I wouldn't say reshaped, but the point is it's now, you know, one of the key staples of our R&D approach. I mean, it's just a, it's what we do day to day. Um, it's expected that we're going to look at human genetics for every target and for every existing development program we have. And so that's been the big change. We've been able to now apply it systematically and help it and help us prioritize and guide the development of our therapeutics. And it's just it's a key piece of the puzzle here at Regeneron um, that I think is a is a key differentiator of our powerful R and D engine. As I mentioned, you'll be speaking at the Precision Medicine World Conference 2017 in Silicon Valley, which gets underway January 23rd. You'll be kicking off a section on the second day about large-scale human genetics programs. How do you see these efforts reshaping drug development overall, and, and what do you see as the translational challenges as we move forward? So we've talked a lot about um, how, how important we think it is, um, and maybe one way to put it is that we believe here very strongly that if you're not doing human genetics, frankly, if you're not doing it in this way, you know, at scale and across your entire pipeline, 
you're really not doing modern-day drug discovery and development. I mean, that's how strongly we feel about the importance of human genetics you know, at this scale across one's pipeline. You know, this uh, conference and panel next week, I'm really excited about it. Um, we've got such a distinguished group on this panel. Uh, Richard Scheller, who has had a phenomenal career and a huge impact in drug development um, in the days of Genentech and elsewhere, and now uh, 23andMe. Uh, Kari Stephenson, who's been just a phenomenal pioneer and inspiration for us and many others in the genetics community. And then, of course, uh, George Antopoulos, uh, Regeneron's R&D leader. Um, uh, you know, obviously his innovations and, and his footprint on biotechnology and the drugs we've developed and, and the technologies and innovations here. Um, this is a really amazing group of individuals, visionary, um, and they can, you know, they'll, they'll have a lot to say on this topic. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, the challenges that we're facing moving forward, you know, one thing I would emphasize is <clears throat> genetics is a key piece of it. Um, so it's not everything, and we often find ourselves when we've we've made you know phenomenal new genetic discoveries, you know, despite how extra extraordinary those may be, um, many times we find ourselves with just as many new questions. We and we've we've already encountered this. We may have uncovered a major uh, genetic um, link to a really important disease, and we might be just at the starting point. I mean, it might be the case, and we've had this happen on multiple occasions, where there are just a handful of publications that exist in the world about this gene. There's just not much known. So we have a lot to do with our colleagues to figure out what does this gene do? How can we even develop assays to, to test whether various therapeutics may modulate that target? Um, so there's a lot of work to do there. And I think the translational challenges you alluded to, it's really going to be key that this community continues to work together and to work with those in, you know, uh, fields of biochemistry and molecular biology and in clinical medicine to really tie together these genetic discoveries to understanding gene function, to developing therapeutics, to, you know, developing applications in medicine and precision medicine. So that's been something that we've been aware of for a while now, and it's been a guiding principle of how we've incorporated human genetics here, and we've appreciated the benefit of that. Um, we've also learned by doing that it's a big challenge. Um, so that, that's what we would encourage folks um, to think about um, to maximize the opportunity to translate genetic discoveries into things um, that can quickly um, get to and benefit patients. Aris Barris, Vice President and Head of the Regeneron Genetics Center. Aris, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you as well. Really enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Aris, he'll be speaking at the Precision Medicine World Conference 2017 in Silicon Valley, which begins January 23rd. For more information, Go to pmwcintl.com. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.